going to continue our study in 1 Corinthians this morning. Um, in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church in the first century remains very relevant to churches in the 21st century, 2,000 years later. Um, many of the issues that Paul addresses, as well as the attitudes, are alive and well today. And, you know, at a very high level, and I know that this is a generalization, but as I have studied this, as I continue to look at it, and the things that Paul is trying to address, there seem to be two primary attitudes that Paul is addressing from multiple different angles. He doesn't um, specify uh, these in so many words, but it, it feels like the, the ideas keep coming back to us. And the two things are, what's in it for me? Church members were concerned about what they get out of church, what they're benefiting from. And you might characterize this as a country club membership mentality. It's like they want to be members, but they want the benefits that come with that, rather than thinking about how they can invest in uh, themselves into the church. And then the other attitude that we see again and again is that of, I'll do what I want. Um, and they, you did this in the name of Christian freedom. Basically, whatever they wanted to do, uh, they, they didn't want to be told what to do by anyone else. And there was a lack of submission and accountability to the church as well as anyone else. <clears throat> and these are some of the same attitudes that are still very prevalent uh, in churches today. And so a brief recap. We're going to be looking at the last part of 1 Corinthians 11 this morning. But a, a, bear, a brief recap of the content that Paul has covered up to this point is important as we think about the subject that he, and the way that he addresses the subject that he does this morning. So in chapters 1 through 6, um, Paul was addressing several major issues that he was aware of, that he had been told were issues in the Corinthian church. And these were issues such as related to divisions, uh, immorality in the church, the church discipline, lawsuits between believers, those kinds of issues he addressed um, proactively. I mean, it was something that he knew about, and so he was addressing. Chapters 7 to 10, then, focused on questions that the Corinthian uh, believers had communicated to him and asked him for some clarification on, and that had to do with marriage and singleness, food offered to idols, and the, those, those types of issues that are neither right nor wrong and deal with the conscience. And so how to think about that. Then in chapter 11, actually at chapters 11 through 14 then, is where Paul is addressing conduct within the local church, um, especially when they're gathered as a group. So the first part of chapter 11 uh, focused on God's divine order for men and women that was ordained by God and we see in creation, is exemplified with the headship veiling and so forth. And so this morning we're going to be looking at the second half of that. And this is where Paul abruptly changes the subject from the veiling and God's divine order. And he also very abruptly changes his tone, as we're going to see. Uh, he... he uh, comes, he approaches this very differently than what he did the first part of chapter 11. 
I've entitled this morning's message, Coming Together in Common Unity. And um, so I want you to pay attention as we read this, the number of times that he talks about them coming together. And uh, I'd like to read this at this time. So if you would, stand, with, stand together, and we're going to read uh, verses 17 through the end of the chapter of 1 Corinthians 11. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I have received from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. You may be seated. <clears throat> this passage of Scripture has four distinct paragraphs um, that we're going to be looking at one at a time. And, um, and just look, working our way down through this passage, not necessarily verse by verse, but paragraph by paragraph, thinking about and looking at what, what Paul is instructing, what Paul is addressing here in this, uh, in this portion of this writing. <clears throat> the first section is verses 17 to 22. And Paul's opening statement in verse 17 is quite jarring. It gets your attention. It says, the following instructions, I do not commend you, um, I'll just stop there because uh, when you come together, it's you know, for better or worse. It's not for the better, but for the worse. What he's about to instruct them on, he has no commendation for them. And maybe a better way of putting it in a negative word instead of um, 
not in a positive word, is that I condemn what you're doing. And it's significantly different than the way that he started the first part of chapter. If you go back to verse 2 of the same chapter, leading into the headship veiling discussion, Paul says, now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions that you delivered unto you. So he's, for the, uh, on the headship piece of it, he is commending them that they're doing what he had instructed them. But here he abruptly reverses that and, and says, I don't commend you. What you're doing is just flat wrong. He is saying that when you get together, your actions only make matters worse. When you're getting together as a church, your behavior is only making things worse. And it's also directed to the group as a whole. It's not simply, it's to the group. Now, I wouldn't say that it's to every individual in the church, but it is to the group as a whole. And there must have been a significant majority of the group that he's addressing here. The other interesting thing is, so while he is clearly, when in the next verse, verse 18, he's very explicitly addressing the Lord's Supper when he deals with this condemnation. Uh, but it may be more than that because, uh, so he says in verse, uh, verse 18, for in the first place, and he continues, and then he starts chapter 12 with now concerning spiritual gifts. And I really wonder if this condemnation, this verse 17 is not addressing uh, this issue as well as the issues we see in 12 and 14. Uh, and so, but we don't know that for certain. It certainly does address the Lord's Supper, but it may be more broad than that as well. Chapters don't necessarily transition smoothly from, uh, they, they disrupt the flow, at least in our minds. And uh, so I'm not certain whether this continues uh, on into chapters 12, 13, and 14 or not. <clears throat> But it's clear that certainly in the, in, with the text that we're looking at today that this condemnation is very clear. Five times in these verses that I read, Paul uses the Greek word that is translated come together or when you come together. Three times in verses 17 to 20 and then again in the last two verses two more times. And I think that this language is noteworthy because when you think about it, a church is not really a church unless or until the people come together physically. A church doesn't exist apart from people actually physically gathering together. And that, we see that indicated in verse 18. It talks about when you come together as a church. Um, you know, there's times today, you know, when a church is referred to as a building, and, you know, and this, this would be considered a church building, but the church is not a place uh, in a specific location, but it's the group of believers that are gathered there. And at other times, a church is generically referred to as all believers everywhere, as the universal church. That's not really accurate either, and both of these depictions just simply fall short. In Scripture, ekklesia is the Greek word translated church, 
And it literally means an assembled group of people for a specific purpose. An assembled group of people for a specific purpose. Outside of Scripture, in New Testament times, ecclesia would have been used for even political gatherings. An assembled group of people for a specific purpose. And so it was not isolated, not unique to just a church, but it's when a group of people get together for a common reason. The church is where believers committed to each other are gathered in person to worship God. He then continues in verse 18 and 19 about identifying that there's divisions or factions within the church as a reason for this condemnation. Since he has already addressed several aspects of these divisions and factions in chapters 1 through 4, it seems to me like what he's addressing here is very different and perhaps more serious than what he had previously addressed. So in the first four chapters, the, the divisions or the factions were more philosophical, if you will. Paul was encouraging the Corinthian believers to look beyond the differences of uh, the preachers. Because remember, I, I'm a Paul, I'm of Apollos, um, and so forth. Look beyond that and see the unity that Christ brings. And then there was also the idea of the wisdom and, uh, and what kind of wisdom they had and so forth. But here, Paul is addressing another form of factions or division. And it feels to me, it seems to me, that here what Paul is addressing is outright discriminatory in nature. It's very different than the earlier factions, that there was just these philosophical differences. But here there's something very discriminatory happening. In verse 19, Paul seems to be saying there would have to be some disunity or division between the genuine believers, the ones that don't actually hold this like who dislike what's happening, and then those that are having their worship services really hijacked with their rude and selfish and discriminatory actions. So in very blunt terms, verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Paul is saying what they call the Lord's Supper is actually far from what it was intended to be. It was not the Lord's Supper. So what was he addressing? What was going on here that brought this level of condemnation on them all? Some of these early church uh, gatherings, early churches, would make an entire meal out of the Lord's Supper. So they would have a, a communal meal uh, when they celebrated the Lord's Supper. And they... Often it would be an evening meal, and then they would conclude with communion or incorporate communion into the meal. And so what may have begun as a potluck-style meal for the Lord's Supper here in the Corinthian church had evolved into something quite different. You know, we do fellowship meals. We, we do potlucks. We all bring something, and we set it out on the table, and we file through, and we get what we want, and... Um, you know, everyone shares with everyone else. But what, what they were doing here was apparently very different than that. 
rather than sharing what they brought with everyone, they would keep it for themselves and they would eat what they brought. And, um, and so then, you know, then also you had in these early churches, they often met in homes and they would gravitate toward the larger homes, which would mean the more wealthy and the church would have the accommodations for them to meet in. And so they would have more room to meet. And so what it seems to have developed here was that the more wealthy believers brought these elaborate meals for themselves and then they would even eat together. The wealthy Christians would eat together, likely in a different room even, from those that were less wealthy or maybe even their slaves. And so there was this separation, this discrimination going on, and they were calling it the Lord's Supper. Some of these poor, poor believers weren't able to bring enough food hardly to feed themselves. And while the rich were in the other room feasting, the poor were going hungry in the name of worship together and in celebrating the Lord's Supper. It was humiliating. It was shameful. It discriminated against those that had less. And it really amplified the differences in their social status. There was nothing unifying and just everything about it was so divisive. And Paul is telling all of them to stop this nonsense and disrespect that they were practicing. He's saying, eat your meals at home. Um, he's not saying that it's wrong for the wealthy to have their elaborate meals. He doesn't indicate that, but he says, eat them at home. You don't need to make a scene of it. And then stop making such a display of the disparity between these believers with whom you're even unwilling to share. There was simply nothing about this scenario that was commendable, and it deserved the common condemnation that Paul clearly uh, outlined here. And he ends this section uh, by saying, what should I say then? Should I commend you in all of this? And he says, no, I will not. Uh, he was like, this, this has to stop. So this first paragraph leading into the part, the section that we often focus on when we think about the Lord's Supper uh, here in 1 Corinthians 11 is really a pretty ugly, um, ugly scene that Paul is trying to address here and trying to bring clarity to it. So then in verse 23, Paul then very abruptly again shifts his tone and the focus away from the condemnation on what they were doing and instead instructing them in what they should be focusing on and what it, this is really all about. Um, in verses 23 through 26, he, he brings clarification to these foundational purposes of the Lord's Supper. He goes back to the origins and he was like, let's think about what the Lord's Supper is really about and focus on that. Stop what you've been doing. Quit acting what you've been, quit acting differently than what I had taught you. Uh, he implies, he says that in verse, beginning of verse 23, says, 
for I have received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. So he had instructed them in this originally uh, when he had established the church and so forth, but something had changed in the year and a half, two years since he had, um, or several years that had passed since he had actually been there. He's like, this is what you ought to be focusing on. This is what's really important. Put away with this other stuff. And these verses are very familiar verses. I would say they're probably read at most communion services, Lord's Supper gatherings. And what I find interesting about this is 1 Corinthians, this letter to the Corinthian church was actually written prior to any of the Gospels. So Paul did not have the Gospels to refer to in documenting what Jesus had to say and what Jesus' instructions were on, uh, on the communion. This letter to the Corinthians was written about A.D. 55, and the earliest gospel was written sometime after A.D. 60. So there was a full five years or more time between the time that Paul records what he does here in verses 23 through 26 before Matthew, Mark, or Luke record their recollection of, uh, of what happened that last night before his arrest and trial and death and resurrection. <clears throat> Paul says here that he received this from the Lord. And there's varying interpretations of what that means. Um, there was definitely a strong oral tradition, and there's no question that Paul heard this orally from disciples and from other, those that were there, that he knew what was communicated. But he says, I received this from the Lord. And so there was that, there was the oral tradition, remembering what, was, what he was told as well as then and telling others. But Paul may have also had a direct revelation. Uh, that may be what he's referring to. Um, that's not absolutely clear, but it certainly, he, he knows with confidence that this is, um, this is correct. There's no, no question about that, whether it was divine revelation or direct teaching from the disciples. And given this realization that this was written a full five years or more prior to the, any of the Gospels, it's exciting to see how similar the gospel accounts are of this very same, this very same um, uh, event. I'm going to just read from Matthew, Mark, and Luke what they record um, from, from these uh, gospels, uh, what they wrote in their gospels then later. Matthew 26, verses 26 to 28 and as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. <clears throat> so that's Matthew's account. Mark 14, verses 22 to 24. And as they did eat, Jesus took bread and blessed it and brake it and gave it to them and said, 
take eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. And then Luke 22, verses 19 and 20. And he took bread and gave thanks and break it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament of my blood which is shed for you. All of these accounts are very brief, very concise, and yet bring foundational clarity to what is important in the observing of this ordinance. And there's not a lot of specifics around this, but the emphasis is on doing this again and again so that we don't forget what Jesus did for us and participating together until he comes again. That's really the emphasis of, of what this is. Communion is really two words. It, or it's a combination of common union. And that really shows, communion is a visible indicator of unity and equality between believers. Um, the educational, social, financial, ethnic, racial, gender differences dissipate. We are one in Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no, no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Again, those barriers are broken down. We are all sinners redeemed by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> the common elements that are used you know, the, the bread and the cup reflect this common unity. The individual grains of wheat are crushed and indistinguishable from any of the others in order to make the bread. The individual grapes are mashed to extract the juice. And all of this is a beautiful picture of the unity, the common unity that we have in Christ. And yet the Corinthians have totally destroyed this picture with what they were doing in the way that they were having or celebrating what they call the Lord's Supper. This object lesson, this, this picture of how Christ bridges those natural human barriers and unifies was all torn apart by what, uh, what they were doing in the Corinthian church. The church, the Lord's Supper, communion, all of these things are about showing each other and the world around us how Jesus changes us and those differences that tend to exist in the world around us don't apply when it comes to the church. Four things that I, I like to think of in relation to communion uh, that I think is important. Remember what Jesus did for us, reflect on my own sin and what I've done, and then renew my commitment to Jesus and to my brothers and sisters. And then lastly, rejoice 
in the gift of salvation, the body of Christ that we're part of, and the promised return of Jesus. So we're to remember, we're to reflect, we're to renew, and we're to rejoice. And we're to keep doing this for the right reasons, with the correct emphasis, until Jesus comes as he promised. We're not to neglect it. We're not to distort it. We're not to minimize it. And we don't want to hijack it the way that the Corinthian church did. So then he moves into the next section here, verses 27 through 32. After condemning them for their actions, then clarifying what he wants them, what they should be doing, now Paul goes back and he cautions them not to get careless about this. You know, apart from the context of what Paul is addressing here, if we would not have verses 17 through 22, this section, verses 27 to 32, I think would be quite confusing as to what is Paul saying? What, what does he mean? What's he trying to address? But given the distortion and the violation of the Lord's Supper earlier, these verses are much easier to understand. And part of the, the shift here is Paul now focuses on that everyone has a personal responsibility when it comes to partaking in the Lord's Supper. And as to the question of what it means um, to participate. So what does it mean to partake in an unworthy manner or unworthily, as some translations put it? Given that we're all sinners, we could certainly all say that we are unworthy. But notice, that's not what he says. He says in an unworthy manner. Um, it's not whether we're worthy or not, because none of us are, are worthy. And, you know, there's been times in my own life when I have struggled spiritually, and I had questioned, you know, whether I should partake in communion. And the reality is probably at those times when I'm aware of some of those weaknesses within my own life, even though I desire to follow God, it's more important than ever to participate because we're actively doing something together with my brothers and sisters in affirming what Christ has done for us. And it's a way of renewing ourselves and to renew our commitment to God and each other publicly. Paul is cautioning the believers here to appropriately honor and esteem the Lord's Supper for what it is and not to make it into something less. When we don't, we're actually sinning against God himself. He says, whoever drinks in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Um, it's not that we're guilty against the elements, but we are literally guilty against God when we do that. He goes on that we should examine ourselves. <clears throat> we're responsible for our own motives and our own actions. Only God knows us better than we know ourselves. We have a responsibility to be completely honest with ourselves, but we also have a responsibility to invite the Holy Spirit to scrutinize our own lives even beyond what we 
know about ourselves. No one else can do that for us. It's between us and God. We can only examine ourselves. We're not called to examine another. Um, now, that said, the church as a whole also has a responsibility in maintaining purity. And the Corinthians were doing a poor job of this as well, if you remember looking back at chapter 5 and addressing the sin that was so obvious in the church. But it starts with individual accountability to God and to each other. So what the Corinthian church had been doing here by segregating and dividing by social class for communion service was to partake unworthily or to partake in an unworthy manner. What they were doing was wrong. It violated the intent. It marred the unity and the oneness the body of Christ is to model. They were guilty. And Paul goes on to say that they have suffered, the weak and the um, ill among you, and some have died. Uh, whether that's, he's referring spiritually or physically doesn't really matter, but there was, there was a price that came with their behavior, and they were called, Paul was calling them to change their approach. If the believers are willing to honestly examine themselves, they are, in a sense, already judging themselves. And it's when we neglect to do so that God's discipline and judgment is going to follow on that. Verses 33 and 34. Paul concludes this section of condemnation, clarification, and caution, then, with a practical solution. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, you will not bring judgment about the other things I will give directions when I come. Here again, Paul emphasizes when you come together. It's assumed, it's expected, it's um, routine, it's normal. A church can't function without physically coming together at a specific location. When, it's not if, you come together to eat. And the context here, we assume that it's the Lord's Supper. And he says, wait for each other. Um, the coming together, the communion, the common union, the common unity, it's all about the group, the ecclesia. It's about the church. It's showing patience by waiting for others. It's not about my individual rights or privileges or desires or priorities. There's value in waiting so that the entire group can participate together. Paul then gently reminds them what he had told them earlier or suggested to them earlier is that if they're hungry, it's okay to eat, but just do that at home and keep that out of the communion service. He wants this coming together to be meaningful, to unify the body, to minimize the differences, and to collectively reflect the unity of Jesus Christ. Paul was addressing a very specific problem here within the Corinthian church. 
And by doing so, I think that we can better understand the value of the importance of coming together in common unity. You know, in our congregation here, we have a quarterly communion service on a Sunday evening, and it's reserved for those that are members of this congregation or a similar church. That's one way that we, we practice this and honor what Paul is addressing here. There, there was a condemnation there for their abuse and their distortion of this sacred act of the Lord's Supper. But Paul clarified the origin and the purpose of, of this ritual, of this practice, that we're to remember what, re, what Jesus did, reflect on our own life and sinfulness, renew our commitment to God and to the ecclesia, and to rejoice in the redemption for the church that we have and that Jesus is coming and real soon. And then he expresses this caution about a reckless approach to the Lord's Supper without honest examination of ourselves and our motives. All of this underlying, the underlying thread, I believe, through this passage is to emphasize the importance of coming together in common unity, demonstrating the unifying power of Jesus Christ to a watching world. You know, the, the value and the benefit of coming together has been challenged over the last 18 months since the pandemic struck. You know, a lot of churches met online for what we did for a period of time. And I don't know that we fully even know the cost of that, but the price of not coming together for a period of time, I believe, was probably more costly than what we actually realize. The ability in that isolation, if you will, to hone and feed our individual appetites and desires apart from the ecclesia probably had a negative impact on us as a group. And then the appetite for coming together more frequently rather than less frequently seems to be lacking. You know, coming together as believers results in spiritual blessings and even stronger than blessings, I want to say power, uh, that can't be substituted in other ways. So my challenge this morning is let's never minimize or neglect the opportunity and the responsibility to come together. Hebrews 10.25 says, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's cultivate an appreciation and a hunger for coming together in common unity while we have the privilege of doing so freely. Let's stand together for closing prayer. <clears throat> Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture, for this letter to the Corinthians, and the, um, the value and the strength and the power that comes from gathering as believers to worship together, to honor you, 
and to demonstrate that unity that you want us to demonstrate to those around us and, um, and, and to show each other. Just pray that as we go from here, that you would uh, direct us in ways that honor you and that we could, we could strive together to make coming together in common unity a priority in each of our lives. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.